I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Does your childhood include some version of, hey, everybody, let's put on a show? You rummaged costumes from your parents' closet, at least I did, recruited the family dog for the cast, and staged a performance that leveraged all of the song and dance talent in the neighborhood. Now, relocate the setting of that makeshift variety show to a pre-war mansion in rural England, where a lonely orphan, precociously clever young Christabel is mounting a play within the curving rib bones of a beached whale. She is learning what artist Louise Bourgeois meant when she said, art is a way of recognizing oneself. Joanna Quinn's best-selling debut novel is titled The Whalebone Theater, and she joins us from Dorset, England. Welcome, Joanna. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to know, of course, whether you remember as a child that sense of creative possibility, right, in staging a show, even if you were just, it was makeshift, you were grabbing the costume somewhere, you're getting everybody in the neighborhood to do it. Do you remember what that was like? Did you do that in Dorset? Yeah, we did. We did. Uh, mainly it was just me and my sister and whatever friends I could co-opt <laughs> into, <laughs> into performing with us. But yeah, I remember you always dressing up and doing ridiculous uh homemade productions and then forcing your parents to come and watch them. I think I think it's such, I see it now with my daughter and her and my niece and nephew. I think it's just a common feature of childhood. I wonder what that is though. I mean, I did this too and a lot of my friends did it in our neighborhood. It wasn't like I felt like I was aspiring to some career in the theater or anything. I have you thought about what that is as you watch your daughter do this? I think um some of it is to do with having a kind of agency because when you're performing you get to pretend to be a grown-up or you get to pretend to be somebody more powerful than you are as a child you get to boss your fellow cast around and you also get to make grown-ups sit down and watch you so there's a kind of a role reversal that you you are the center of attention and you are in charge and making decisions and I think that's possibly part of the appeal for for children in putting on shows boy that is a that's a great analysis of that did you charge money for tickets to come see your shows because we did <laughs> no but i should have <laughs> missed a trick <laughs> and your daughter hasn't gotten on to that yet that there's money to be made in this <laughs> no and i shan't tell her no. <laughs> <laughs> okay understood so um i i had read that quote that i from louise bourgeois uh a few years ago what what she said about art And it popped into my mind as I was reading your novel and the character of Christabel is taking shape. I mean, what what you've created, I think, in her character is this idea that she is who she is, even as a very young child. And these performances that she's created are giving her the opportunity to understand herself, recognize herself. So I want to know a little bit more about how you came into the creation of Christabel. And then we can talk about how she, you know, how she's a f- kind of like a fully formed character, even as a child. Yeah, I hadn't heard that quote before, actually, that um, that you mentioned. Would you remind, would you mind reminding me of it? Art is a way of recognizing oneself. Yes, yeah. No, it's perfect. I really like that. Now, Christabel is, she's a sort of fully formed human, even as a three-year-old, but I think that's um, 
I think that we all are actually. And as when I think back to myself as a very, very young child and I can remember back to being three or four, I think I was just me. Really? <laughs> I think my, yeah, I do. I do. I think there is something essential in us that is, that is just there from the beginning. Um, and, but for Christabel, you're right in that the theatre allows her to, to, it's sort of like a, uh, like an arena where she can test out the limits of who she's becoming. She can be other people. So she, she quite often takes on male roles in their performances or um, parts that she wouldn't ordinarily be allowed to do within the sort of fairly rigid social structure of her family and her society. So it allows her that freedom to try out different roles. And it also allows her to be in control, that sort of agency that I talked about. So it allows her to put her imprint on the world as well. Um, and I think the theatre as well, because it is, it's a democracy as well as being a dictatorship. <laughs> if you're the director, you're in charge, but you also have to work with other people. I think through that and through having to acknowledge there are other people who have different skills, it also tests her because she is someone, she's an eldest child, she's an orphan, she's in charge of most things, she's a natural leader, but in order to make have successful performances within her theatre, she has to accommodate other people. So there's a testing of her um, her will really there. You know, when I read a novel um, where the a, a child is the central character, I, I, I feel very ambivalent about that often. Like, mm-hmm. I'm on the lookout for the very difficult task, right, of creating a child that seems a child character that seems genuine without the author imbuing them with, right, adult kind of... Um, dimensions. Uh, mm-hmm. it, and it seems like you straddled that balance really well. I, I'm, I'm interested in how you, I mean, you, you have a child of your own. So maybe that yeah. was meaningful for this. I don't know. Talk to me about how you did that. I think there is a danger when people when when you write about children that you kind of schmaltz it, schmaltz yeah. it a bit, and yes. it gets a bit sickly. Um, and I think the the thing I've always tried to bear in mind is that for children aren't schmaltzy to themselves. <laughs> Their view of the world is not saccharine and sentimental. We project that back onto them. So they are taking themselves quite seriously. And I think that's what I try to do with the children in my book is not to look down on them, but to be in them looking out at the world. And really the only thing that they lack is, is an understanding, a greater understanding of what's going on around them that we have as adults. Other than that, they are you know, fully formed human beings. Um, my daughter actually is younger than the children in the book. She was a baby when I was writing about these children. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't able to steal any of her characteristics. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's mainly um, it's mainly based on my own memories of childhood and, and uh, just sort of general observation of them. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it is, I think the, the knack, if there is a knack, is, is to just sort of um, try to fully inhabit their, their worldview. And this, the book is written in the present tense, which is a deliberate attempt to try and make sure that you felt you were inside those children looking out at that world rather than looking back at them through sort of rose-tinted glasses. You know, that's it. I mean, there is not a preciousness, even though she's precocious in her own way, there isn't a preciousness to to these personalities. In fact, there's times when 
you know, she's not a, even a really likable child every now and then. I mean, she's always interesting, but I don't know that she's always likable. What do you think of that? Yeah, and I don't think um, I don't <laughs> I don't think they should be children. Really, I think they're quite their instincts and their desires and their um, all of the things that we do so well to cover up as adults are a little bit closer to the surface. Just when you thought of that, I thought of a line where she's, she's talking about the fact she knows that she's going to get a stepbrother or sister soon. Mm-hmm. And she decides that she's going to share everything with them <laughs> apart from the things that are hers. And I think that <laughs> right. kind of like negotiation of power, yeah, you can have some of that, but not the stuff that's mine, is more honest and more like how children are than to think, oh, I'm going to share everything with you. Because right. I just don't think they do that. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you mentioned that she's an orphan, and I, I think we ought to say that, that that self-recognition that she's developing through the expression of these little plays she's doing, and then that becomes more important, and some of the other things that she's experiencing, I mean, it's a... I, I saw it as a more difficult, more perilous process because she doesn't have parents who will say, this is who we are, and so this is who you are. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah exactly. And it, um, it, that really nicely echoes as a section much later in the book when she's an adult uh, being interviewed for a position in the military where she thinks about being um, a kind of parentless child and she compares herself to Mowgli from the Jungle Book and thinks that she sort of brought herself up and she tried to figure out how to do it. And I think part of what I love about Christabel is the fact that she is an orphan and she is on her own and she is trying to bring herself up and she is using the tools that are available to her, which are books that she finds in the library. And that's how she ends up putting on the plays because she reads these stories and she wants to reenact them. So she's she is doing the best that she can, but it is... You're quite right. It is a perilous position. There is no, there is not much for her there, and there is nobody who is going to catch her if it all goes wrong, or to even guide her in any kind of direction at right, all. Right, right. I mean, you know, what popped into my head as I was as I realized what this meant to her character is, you know, she's not literally being raised by wolves, but she's really <laughs> being raised by adults who are indulging themselves. Right. She has very little moral guidance, which is um, which. Yeah, I I think that's a very perilous place to be for a child. It is. And it's she's in the she sort of comes of age in the 1920s. And there was after the First World War in England, there was kind of this reaction against the the darkness and the horror of that time in the 1920s, where there was a more of a bohemian kind of artistic um, lifestyle grew up and the people that um, they're not her, her parents but they're her guardians who are looking after Christopher in the house uh, really embrace that lifestyle and they have lots of artist friends and they have big parties and they're drinking a lot and there's a lot of socializing going on but what they're not doing is parenting <laughs> at all and we tend to glamorize the 1920s and we think of it as this time of people you know doing the Charleston in amazing sequin dresses and it all being very exciting and glamorous and what we don't really think about were the children who were upstairs in those big houses hearing the music coming up through the floor maybe not having been given the proper meal that day or having had anyone talk to them um so that was i liked thinking about that time through the eyes of children who probably wouldn't have enjoyed those parties (laughs) yeah i mean that that's really an interesting perspective because Mm -hmm. um 
you know, this is this. It's set on this big estate, and as you said, there's there's money, and there are artists coming and going. There's also no no real control over who enters these children's lives, right? There's it doesn't seem like there's any thought given to what's it going to mean to expose, um, you know, Christabel and then her other half siblings to these people that are just showing up who knows what kind of characters they might be yeah there is i think the the sort of protectiveness of children is probably a fairly recent development yeah (laughs) i think that they the adults in this story are, are far more preoccupied with themselves and they've sort of outsourced children to other people they either send them off to boarding school or they get governesses in it's not something that they think is their responsibility i don't think um and I just I don't think that, that it would even occur to them, and quite possibly also because they drink a lot, to worry about who is coming and going and what kind of influence they might have because they don't think it's their problem. <laughs> um, I'm intrigued by uh, what you said about what it was like in England in the 1920s. This is coming out of the First World War with all the deprivation and tragedy of the war. Tell me what else you've learned about that time and what that meant for the culture in in Britain. Yeah, well, I read I, I read an awful lot of really interesting uh, research books about that time. My favourite of which was called "Among the Bohemians" by a woman called Virginia Nicholson, and it talks about this um, move in England at that time as a reaction to the First World War for people to try and find new ways of living. Mm. Um, and you can see it in the Bloomsbury Group, so Virginia Woolf and those sorts of people, where they were trying to paint and they were being maybe more. Um, adventurous and who they took as lovers and things like that. And there's quite a lot of experimentation and um, trying to find alternative ways to live at a time when all the sort of certainties that had been in England before the war, the sort of stiff Victorian boarding school, um, very buttoned up kind of Englishness, had sort of been undermined by the effects of the war. So there was this move to try and find a different way of living. Um, And then that sort of moves into the 1930s. But of course, things start to get darker there as we move towards the Second World War. So it's this period between the wars where the social contract, right, I guess the cultural contract is really being ripped up or reexamined. Questions about how we live. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think in the 1920s, it was it would that kind of those changes were confined to a smaller group of people who had the money to in order mm. in, in order to enable that lifestyle. I mean, you did get sort of starving artists and garrets in London, but there weren't that many through the nineteen thirties and then into the nineteen forties. It sort of spreads outwards into other people. So these are sort of the leaders, not leaders, but it's the sort of it's the pioneers really who were, who were starting to think about different things. And quite often they were upper class, or they had friends who were upper class who who would um, who would act as patrons you know who'd give them money and you see that in my book as well you see Rosalind as sort of adopting an artist who comes to live in a cottage on the estate and there was it was sort of fashionable in that time if you were um a woman who lived in a big manor house to be a patron of the arts you know that was quite a um a trendy thing to do there's a few big houses that I've been to visit when I was doing research and you would read about some you know, a woman called Maud who'd lived there in the 1920s who'd adopted like a Russian ceramicist <laughs> who came to live in a in a hut in the grounds. And it was almost wow. like a like a party piece that you could come, oh, do come and do come and meet him. He's doing his work in the lawns, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> right. Um, 
Yeah. So, and I liked that idea too, that it was almost like a, a sort of social status that you, you were seen to support the arts. It, it's a never ending, I, I don't want to say party, but it, it's a never, it, it does have this feel until the war arrives again of just this never ending idol, I-D-Y-L-L, mm-hmm. um, where you know, one day flows into the next. And if you don't have purpose in your life, it doesn't matter. I mean, I guess that is what I I spent a lot of time examining these, these adults in this big house with these children who are showing them nothing about what it means to have purpose in your life. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's something that I was interested in as well, actually, it's that it's it's the emptiness of some of the lives in those yeah. houses, which for, well, particularly for the women, actually, because they weren't educated upper class English women weren't educated uh, anything above a little bit of French or something that made you an attractive marriage proposal. They didn't get any proper education. They didn't go to university. They weren't going to have a job. All they were there for was to breed mm. um, and then entertain, you know, receive guests and there is something quite empty in that. I mean, all you really do is invite people to your house and then go and visit people's in their houses. <laughs> and for Willoughby as well, who is um, who is the um, Rosalind's husband, he has no. After the First World War has ended, he has no purpose anymore. Right. He can't get a job, so he, he's he's sort of empty too. And I do think there is a kind of kind of moneyed boredom, really. So they're trying to come up with ways to entertain themselves. Um, and it's within that context that the children have the freedom to sort of to to run wild. But yeah, I think it must have been terrifically dull, actually, in lots of ways. Nice for a weekend, but that would be it. <laughs> Joanna, I love these settings for novels and, and TV shows. And I don't know why, because the women, <laughs> I would never want to lead a life like that. I mean, it is so purposeless. It's refined, yes, and it's beautiful, I guess, on the surface, but there is no purpose. And yet I, I don't know, somewhat like you, I guess, have been kind of drawn to understanding that life. <laughs> I don't, yeah. you, you sound interested yeah, in weird. it too. Yeah, I am. I am. I think was, well, there's lots to be interested in, or interested in, in the big house and not least in that it's sort of... It's like, um, you know how you open a doll's house and you can see all the different rooms inside. Yeah. So there's lots and lots of people living in it at the same time. And quite a lot of the time they come from different parts of society and they have different roles. So that's fun because it's all in one building. But then if you take that house and move it across time, if you take it from the First World War to the Second World War, there's massive external social changes that are going to turn all those roles upside down, which is really fun to think about. So it's just like a nice stage set that you move through time and see how all these things change. Mm. Um, and I think as well, it's just, there's something weirdly comforting about big house settings. I'm not quite sure why. I think it's because <laughs> they are quite familiar um, and it, it's fun to go into them. There's a sort of, um, I don't know what it is because we are, we do sort of know what to expect and it's sort of like a, like something that you return to that feels comforting in a way. Right. But in, and also in mine, hopefully, I think you see that the that the war gives gives them the Second World War gives the characters um, a purpose, and Definitely. that's why it's yeah why it's so not um, it's 
obviously it's a horrible thing and it's a tragedy, but it's also an opportunity in a way. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, and I'm in conversation with Joanna Quinn. Her debut novel is titled The Whalebone Theater, and she's joining us today from Dorset, England. You know, I think that title is intriguing enough that I think we better explain uh, <laughs> where that fits into into the novel. So can you just describe what happens when this whale washes up on the beach and how that kind of changes the lives of this family? Sure. Well, I, I used to live in a place called Boscombe, which is also in Dorset, and it has a pier there that goes out to sea. And on the pier, there is a display about a whale that got washed up on Boscombe Beach, the sort of turn of the century. Hmm. And it basically tells you the story that when the whale first washed up, it was like a popular attraction and people came to see it. And then after a while, as it started to rot, it became increasingly unpopular and more of a health hazard. And then there were lots of discussions about what should be done with it. And it was eventually turned into uh, like a display on the pier itself. Its skeleton was there. And it was also within... Um, there is this strange old law in England that if a whale washes up on the beaches, um, it belongs to the monarch by right. It's like an Anglo-Saxon law, which is still stands even today. Really? So if a whale washes up on the beach near me now, um, I have to get on the phone to King Charles and let him know this is his. <laughs> um, so I, I had that. I knew all of that stuff about the whale and that they have. They do very occasionally wash up in Dorset. And I thought it would be interesting, particularly given that the monarch owns it, um, and a lot of the book is about entitlement and men being given things that women aren't, that this whale should turn up. And Christabel, my child character, should think that it's hers because she's found it, but then she finds out that it's owned by the king, which is going to infuriate her because that's the kind of thing she finds very, very unfair, which it is. <laughs> she has a strong sense of justice, doesn't she? She does, she yeah. does. So I had this big whale in my in my book, in my on lying on the beach. And it was there for quite a while while I was writing bits of the book and I wasn't entirely sure what to do with it. Thinking, hmm. Is that really <laughs> true? It wasn't, yeah, I'd, it wasn't yeah, preordained I this no. whale would create a, a stage set? Oh my gosh. No, huh. it was, I thought, I always like telling people this because I think, I think people, when they try to write stories, they think that they need to know everything before they start. Yeah. And quite a lot of the time you might not know your big idea till you get like right into it so I knew I had the whale and it was just sitting there and I kept thinking I really need to do something with that because in the story the children were just walking past it (laughs) and it was just lying there and then I went to see Kate Bush do a live show uh, back in 2014 and she had this amazing stage set that looked like the ribs of a whale and I thought oh I could make they could turn it into a theatre and as soon as I thought that I thought it's so it's so obvious that of course they would turn it into a theatre and then that felt really nice because that felt like Christabel claiming the whale back from the king, but not just claiming it to own it, but to claim it to make it into something and something creative, which felt like a much more interesting uh, reclamation of something. So they turn it into a um, a theatre with the help of the res- one of the resident artists that's living there at that time. And the adults kind of let them get on with it because it sort of fits in with their social ambitions. Oh, yes, we've got a theatre. Do come see. <laughs> and so they're, they're sort of indulged in that and it becomes a thing. It becomes an actual outdoor theatre on the beach near the house. I mean, what what's so remarkable about it is it, I mean, it, at first you think, so these kids are going to do these plays inside the rib cage of a huge <laughs> whale. And then... And then it becomes 
this makes so much sense. I, I don't know if, if it's because of the plays that they're choosing or the sense of uh, artistry or something that they're bringing to it. I, I had no trouble imagining th- this unfolding like this. So yeah. having not I seen really the Kate like Bush play. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you should do it. <laughs> yeah. I'll see if I can find a whale, but it does, it does. It's a nice, like a proscenium arch or something. The, the rib bones of a whale do right. make a good shape. Right. Um, and I don't know if you'd, um, there's a theater in Cornwall right down at the sort of uh, bottom end of England, which was, it's called the Minack theater. And that was created by a woman single-handedly. And she kind of carved it out of the stone. Wow. of the cliff so it sits on the edge of the cliff and I used to go there as a kid when on family holidays so I think that was in the back of my mind as well you know this kind of amazing outdoor theater on the edge of a on the edge of the sea right yeah it reminded <laughs> me of when you when you go to Roman or Greek ruins and there's one pillar left in the ruin but you can imagine but the but the whole scene kind of comes together around that one Mm -hmm. pillar that remains. I mean, just you can fill that space with something that's kind of iconic or something. You can fill that whole space in your imagination. Yeah, yeah, it does seem, I mean, I think that's what I was sort of trying to say when I was saying it felt really obvious that it should be a theater because there is something in that the, the way they sort of the rib bones curve up like the sides of a ship or something that makes it feel like a perfect setting for some sort of epic Greek drama, which right. is, you know, I think the children, the first play they put on is the Iliad. <laughs> right, right. So um, it sounds like you you spend time as a spectator at the theater. I, I mean, have you have you worked in the theater? There's a lot of knowledge here that's kind of filtered into the book it sounds like you you really know what you're talking about when it comes to theater I'm a a big fan I think that's the main thing I love going to the theater um possibly more than anything and I watch a lot of it I did I've not performed that much I did a few bits and pieces at uh, university where we had like just student plays so I did a couple of those but nothing after then I just um I just like it a lot yeah (laughs) and I like reading about it yeah I mean there's there's the kind of detail you know what in some ways it put me in mind of have you read Jesse Burton's The Miniaturist and I haven't no you know she comes out of the theater and and I actually think her story is um she just her career wasn't really taking off in the theater but she took all this detail and knowledge and texture and richness from that experience and then put it into these novels and that's what yours feels like i felt like in some ways maybe just you're as a you as a spectator you might notice things that are happening on and off stage that i might never see you have this such a keen eye it seems for this i mean yeah well i i think um the scenes, thank you for that, but also the, I think the scenes where I describe going to the theatre, I think they're really, really important. I really, really wanted to feel like, for the reader to feel like they were there. So, for example, the first time the children go to the theatre, right. it's in London and they go to see the Ballet Russe. Oh, which is wonderful famous... description. Oh, my gosh, loved it. <laughs> yeah, and I, that scene felt so important because 
it's the first time they've ever left the house pretty much <laughs> first time they've been to london first time they've been to the theater so it's going to be an incredible experience for them and they are going to notice everything and it's all new to them so when i was thinking through what they would be looking at and thinking about it all had to be through the eyes of someone who's never seen anything like that before and then the other major sort of play that i describe takes place much later in the book in occupied paris where they go to a theater there but that was also I really, really wanted because that was such an intriguing idea for me to go to the theatre in a city in a time of war. Mm-hmm. I thought I really wanted people to feel that as well. So again, and I talked to a friend of mine who works in the theatre about what people would see backstage, you know, that kind of thing, what ropes would be hanging out, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Right. Um, and I really wanted you to just feel like you were there in that moment watching those plays. I'm going to come back to that because it's Antigone that's being staged in Par- mm-hmm. in occupied Paris. But before we get to that... Here's what I that scene. I, I wish I had your book right in front of me, but I don't. Do you? Do you have yours? Yeah. Okay. There's that that scene that you've just described, where the children are watching a performance, a professional performance for the first time. First time they've been to London. It's felt like you found really new ways for Chris to describe what Christabel was experiencing in that. What, what, uh, if you can find it, I would love it if you'd mm-hmm. read maybe a couple paragraphs from that scene as she's watching the ballet. Yeah, I can. Great. Um, the children under Myrtle's wing are guided to their places at the front of the circle. They watch as the multitude of theatergoers find their places in the stalls beneath them. Beyond the stalls in the orchestra pit where the musicians are warming up with a seesawing cacophony, a red stage curtain hangs from ceiling to floor. The curtain is lit from beneath. It glows. Then the house lights dim and the murmuring audience quietens. The conductor raises his baton, the violinists tuck their instruments beneath their chins and everyone breathes in. They wait. Rosalind coughs. The curtain goes up. From the wings, a long-haired figure comes running, leaping high as a deer. Arms raised, legs fully extended, a body in the air at full tilt. Through the small binoculars she has found in front of her seat, Christabel watches intently. She can see puffs of dust rise from the stage boards as the dancer thumps down to earth. The conductor gives a flourish and the orchestra begins to play. The dancer, a muscular figure in a skin-tight costume, responds to the music with exaggerated movements that extend through every sinew. Some are graceful and arching, but some are jagged and functional. Movements that implore, soothe, reach. Others that deny, stomp, insist. More dancers run run on from the wings. Lit by the stage lights, they fling themselves about with wild gestures. Through her binoculars, Christabel decides some must be women, as they are wearing diaphanous dresses and dancing on the tips of their toes. She has never seen people move in this way before, and none of them seem embarrassed by what they are doing. The stage set is also intriguing. There are patterned shapes arching in from either side to create a forest bower, but when the lighting changes colour, the shapes resemble other things. A church nave, the beams of a workshop, the belly of a ship. She trains her binoculars on the first dancer again. Despite the transparent costume, it is not immediately apparent as to what lies beneath but she is fairly confident that the bulge at the top of the muscular legs indicates a man. It is fascinating, almost shocking, to see a body so outlined and revealed. He looks naked. Christabel glimpses drops of sweat flying from his forehead as he spins, but his face never betrays the effort he is making. 
Oh, my gosh. That's that's wonderful. Joanna Quinn, reading from her new novel, The Whalebone Theater. I, I guess what I was saying before you read that was, I think you found a way to capture what it's really like as a child to see a staged performance for the first time. You know, experience, then we settle in, we know what to expect. But that first time, I can remember the very first time I saw a professional, you know, theater performance. It's wonder all around, isn't it? Yeah. And also, it's interesting to think about what it would have been like to see the Ballet Russe, who, although they're they're not quite at their experimental height here, they've kind of passed that um, and become popular. They were they weren't dancing like anybody else. You know, there, there was a kind of formal ballet sort of dancing that existed before them. And then they were doing this, we would think of it more like contemporary dance, I think, much more experimental. So th- these children have come from this very sort of, um, in a, some ways, a sheltered background, mm-hmm. not really seeing anything outside of their immediate experience. They're seeing grown-ups in very skin-tight costumes who are... Um, not behaving like men and women normally behave at all. They are doing very, very different things. And that would have been not just to children, but to grown-ups too, I think quite shocking and quite, oh, goodness. (laughs) And that was really fun to think about. And I think about um, particularly for Christabel and her younger brother, Digby, that that will kind of slightly explode their minds in what men and women can and can't do. You know, mm-hmm. it's all different here. Mm-hmm. All the certainties collapse when you see that kind of thing. I think she also, again, has that experience of, you know, what we talked about earlier, which is recognizing yourself through art. I mean, she, there's something about this that, in that scene, that kind of thrums through Christabel and she, you know, she feels this kind of gravitational pull to it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, actually, it's just a few paragraphs down from where I stopped reading. She she talks about how she loves the kind of collective endeavor of what she's looking at. She loves the fact everybody on stage is and everyone in the orchestra and all the people backstage, they're all working together towards a single aim. And I think she says that it reminds her of stories she's read about men going together into battle. So she relates it back to her own stories. And then she says she would like very much to be a part of that. No, she would like very much to be in charge of that. So she already thinks this is what I want to do and I want to be part of this this group endeavour, this team effort, this battalion of the Mm theatre, and I want to lead it. I mean, I, I pulled another scene out where it's, it's this wonderful passage where Christabel is, quote unquote, directing the play at the Whalebone Theater and the rehearsals have been struggling and it's all feeling chaotic as she tries to pull things together. And yet she has this powerful sense of being exactly where she's supposed to be. And I, I just I pulled a couple of Um, sentences out of this scene. Christabel loves her cast. She realizes that now. She loves them as the gods love mortals, benignly and with forgiveness. They had been infuriating in rehearsals, utterly rage-inducing, but now, by some mysterious alchemy, they are perfect. (laughs) I mean, she's 
it's wonderful because she's gotten inside the thing that is so transformational, right, about a, a yeah. theater experience. Yeah, you read that beautifully. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> but yes, I think that made me think of um, the play I was in when I was at university was a play called Our Country's Good by a playwright called Timberlake Vertenbacher. And it's about, it's a play about a play. It's a play about convicts in Australia who put on a play and are transformed by it. And it's interesting because I think it also echoes the experience of anyone who's ever been in a play. But there is a bit where you all hate each other. It's all <laughs> going horribly wrong. Nothing's working. You're all falling out. It just it's chaos and it's awful. And then at some point there is this switch where it goes, actually, no, this is perfect. And I love these people. These are my best friends. And I want to stay in touch with them forever. And everybody cries and gets drunk and da-da-da-da. Um, and I, it, it is true, I think. And maybe it's true of any kind of big creative and endeavor you're making a film or that involves a group of people there probably is that bit where you you hate it but then there is a bit where you kind of break through and it allows you to feel this sort of enveloping fondness for your fellow humans right right um do you think that i i wonder if if um you know the professionals who have been doing this the, the highly experienced actors who've been doing this for years ever lose that where you know, just the the power of there will be that turn and again it's going to change me in some ways do you think they ever lose that i would hope not i imagine that's why you keep doing it or maybe it must must be horrible if you end up in a place where you're just going through the motions and you don't get that thing where you suddenly feel like it's you're all part of one mass organism rather than its singular entities if you sort right. of mean that's what, how it felt to me even in my little amdram thing at university that we went from being squabbling <laughs> single cell amoebas to like joining together <laughs> i like that description i mean what you're also doing is you're giving us this sense that christabel will have as war descends and she wants to play a role and she kind of enters into what the role that she can, the contribution she can make um, on behalf of England. And she has this sense that she's a part of that. And there is a right larger purposeful entity, right. That is all working together to save yeah. the world. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me. I think the Second World War, and I mean, there's lots and lots of books and films and stories about the Second World War. And I think one of the things that keeps drawing us back is that sense that perhaps that was almost the last time when there was a <laughs> a right and a, a very easy right and wrong side to be on. Right. And if you were on, you know, you could choose your side and you knew that what you were doing was fighting for right. Um, so there is that, there is that that sense of wanting to be part of a collective good. Um, but I think as well, it also taps into Christabel's childhood reading where she's read all these boys' adventure stories and plays. And they're all, there's an awful lot of militaristic um, content in those kind of stories. There's awful, you know, you prove yourself through valour and the Iliad as well. Again, you prove yourself through battle. So it's sort of within her that she thinks that that's exactly what you do in these moments of crisis. You step up and you... In many ways, I think her internal role models as a young girl are all male. They're all those sort of male values of mm. fighting and and conquest. So that she feels like, yes, this is what we do now. We go and fight. And and those certainties within her are going to get some knocks through the war when she realizes what it's actually about. <laughs> right. So where did you come across this 
the story of the staging of Antigone in Paris and how popular it ended up being yeah. in occupied Paris, I should say. That was that was so lucky. I was doing lots of reading around um, life in occupied Paris in the Second World War because I was always fascinated by that city and the fact that it it was occupied fairly early on in the war and then it was a sort of peaceful in inverted commas occupation where the Germans lived alongside the people in Paris. Um, so that was an interesting setup for me. So I knew I wanted to go there in my story. And I was reading lots of stuff about cultural life in Paris and I must have gone past the fact that Antigone had been put on there countless times and it didn't really sort of register with me because I didn't actually know the story. I had, hadn't had ever seen the play of Antigone or read the story. Mm. And I, at some point I thought, we should read that. I keep seeing that being mentioned. So I went and bought a, um, a Penguin Classics translation and read it and thought, oh, hang on, this is really good. It's about brothers and sisters and sacrifice and that's really good. And of course they're going to go and see that. Um, and then the more I read about it, the more interested I got. And one of the things that really fascinated me was the fact it was equally popular with the French people who were living in Paris and the occupying Nazi so soldiers. Intriguing. And it's it's a fascinating play. And I should also say that the play that they went to see isn't the um, isn't Sophocles. It's, it's a re, it's a reworked version right. by a French playwright whose name I can never pronounce, but it's something like Onwil, Jean Onwil. Uh-huh. Um, and and it's a slight. It's more of a two hander. So it's more between Antigone and uh, Creon, her uncle. And it, you can see when you're watching it or when you're reading it that the uh, Nazis probably would have emphasised and. Um, seen themselves reflected in Creon, who's talking about we need stability, we need to make sure the state is looked after, we need to punish people because otherwise there's no discipline, there's that kind of thing, that's the arguments he's putting across. And he would have seen the young uh, French people in the audience would have identified with Antigone, who's saying, absolutely not, I'm going to disagree with every single thing you say and I'm prepared to die for it. Um, And it's this argument between between those two people. And and when you're reading it as well, actually, you do sort of think, well, he's kind of right in some ways. <laughs> so it's, it puts you in a quite a complicated position as a viewer, as, an, as a reader as well. Yeah. So that was fascinating. And I just wanted to, I thought that was perfect. And also it emphasized the power of the theatre to encompass both those oppositions. Absolutely. I mean, what's so interesting about your choice to put that in the novel is we get this sense of how, subver- again, how subversive theatre art can be that, you know, this play would speak to the occupied population um, with some very dangerous messages that the Germans must have been somewhat, what, blind to, or they thought Creon's argument wins the day. I mean, how, yeah. how do you settle that? Every play would have been checked. One of that's one right. of the other interesting things about plays in in Paris. They all had to go past this. All the scripts had to be submitted to this office that was called something like the Propaganda Staffel, where they would check and either say no, you can't put that on. It's too subversive. It's too patriotic. Or they would cut large chunks out. So they very tightly controlled what was performed because they knew they recognised clearly in wanting to control it that the theatre had a power. Um, so a lot of what the playwrights did was that they put on Greek classics, thinking, oh, you can't, you know, it's from a long, long time ago. You can't argue with that. And But it is it is amazing to think that the Germans would go and watch it and think, well, no, clearly Cleon, Creon is in the right here and he out-argues Antigone, therefore it's fine for us to put this on. But all the Parisian 
young um, resistance who went to watch it were thinking, actually, no, Antigone wins this argument. <laughs> right. I mean, you're, you putting this into the novel um, reminded me of a conversation I had one time with uh, the spy novelist Alan First. Have you ever read any of his novels? Yeah, I love Alan First. I yeah, do when too. I was when I was <laughs> when I was writing this, somebody gave me I can't remember which one I started with, but it was one of the ones that involves Paris in right. the war and said, Oh, you should read this you're, if you're writing about that time. But then I got on a, on a full Alan, Alan oh, First. Oh, I'm binge, so glad. <laughs> okay, so one of the yeah. things so so this will resonate with you. I mean one of the things he said to me was he loves to find he does the kind of research that you're describing as well and he loves to find these some of these what you might think of as innocuous little morsels and he slips them into the story and even if the the reader never really notices or nobody even brings it up like it might be something that is sitting on a banquet table you know <laughs> in a german occupied city where there's a big banquet um being held and even if the reader never really remarks on it he gets this immense amount of satisfaction from knowing that he found it and he slipped it in. <laughs> does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and you do. I do really, really like. It. I could, I could have made up an entire performance in Occupy Paris, and that would have been fine too. But I do really like finding the thing that fits perfectly, which is also real. I don't know why that gives me an extra, extra satisfaction, but it really does. Because then you go, oh yes, that's perfect, but it's also true. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the um, when they go to the play, they go in these things called velo cabs. I think they call them. Right. But they're basically like cycle powered rickshaws. Yeah, it's like V E L O. Yeah. Yeah, we have them in big cities now. We have them in London, where it's like a little cab on wheels pulled by someone on a bike. Um, but I'd seen pictures of them in occupied Paris because there wasn't much petrol. Um, and I really wanted to in just include that detail because I thought someone whizzing in one of those through the streets of Paris would just be a nice way to set that scene up. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, because Christabel goes into uh, resistance work and she's battling for uh, more responsibility and, you know, they're at times they're trying to pull her out and, um, I mean, this is a – I guess I think of this as kind of a feminist novel in a sideways way. Maybe you think of it as more straight on. Was that deliberate? I think um, Chris, the thing I always think about Christabel is that she's logical. You mentioned before that she has a strong sense of injustice. Right. And she sees things very, very clearly. And so she sees that things are unfair. And so, for example, when she joins the undercover operations in France, she has notices that the women are only given two out of three possible roles. They're never chosen to be the leader of a circuit. They always are um, a messenger or a wireless operator. And she can see that that's unfair because there is no logical reason for them not to be given the other role. So that that was deliberate that her clear sightedness would allow her to identify and complain about or not complain about the things that are unfair and they're unfair to her because she's a woman. Um, and in that sense, yeah, it is a feminist book, but it's, it's through that, that, that sort of that prism of logic really. Right. I mean, what, what's, what I think you've done with that is it, it sound it reads as very realistic and not, triumphant if you know what i mean yeah and i think there was 
I mean, I read lots of um, memoirs from women who'd worked within the Special Operations Executive, which is the branch of um, undercover work that Christabel gets involved in. And a lot of them talked about it in very positive terms because it did really give them a chance to contribute. And they were doing things they would never ordinarily be given the opportunity to do in real life. And they, But they were also aware that it was unfair, but they also didn't want to be seen to be complaining about it. So there's a there's a sort of a tricky balance. You don't want to um, you don't want to upset the apple cart by complaining that things are unfair while you're involved in it. Um, and, I, and most of them only really talked about the, the the ways in which they were restricted after the war. Looking back, mm-hmm. so while they were in it, they didn't. Yeah, you know, I, I'm interested. I think through the through our conversation, mm-hmm. we've um, we've talked about kind of the landscape of Dorset, the big house, the you're growing up. You're, have you lived anywhere else in the UK or are you firmly rooted in <laughs> Dorset? And then I have well, a no, question in, about that. <laughs> okay. Oh, I was going to say I was born in Hammersmith, which is like the least rural part oh, of the world ever it. in London. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, we moved to Dorset when I was seven. Um, so I lived here as a child and I, but I went away for university and I've lived in other cities, um, but came back when about 10 years ago when I had my own daughter. Okay. So I've lived here for most of my life, but I have lived in other parts of the world too. I, I, I'm just interested in how the, you know, the the landscape of Dorset has been important to your own art. I, I mean, there's a kind of wildness to it. You Again, you put a lot of beautiful detail about what it's like there. What What is it meant to you know, the creation of this novel and, and your writing overall? I think primarily I just, I really love the the bit where of Dorset where I am, which is uh, very close to the coast. And although the, where the children live in Dorset is a fictional village, and a fictional stretch of coast it is based very closely on a part of the world that I love. So that really gave me an opportunity to try and describe that bit of landscape that I love. Um, and I also... I hadn't, although I've lived here on and off for most of my life, I hadn't really thought about writing about Dorset. And I think that's maybe quite common that you don't look at where you live with much interest because mm. you're so used to it. And I read an amazing book um, by a man whose name I won't be able to remember, which is about a village in Dorset and he'd used it as a way of looking at the whole of the 20th century. Wow. And I suddenly thought, gosh, that's really interesting. How Why, how, why didn't I think about it? <laughs> doing that and it's an interesting part of the world because the landscape is very green and rolling mm-hmm. and there's lots of it that feels very 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 English and he's used it as a way to reflect on what it means to be English reflect on what it means to have an attachment to this kind of landscape and I thought well I could do a Dorset family and I could use that as a way of thinking about roles within the family and gender roles within the family and and situate that in Dorset as well and that would be fun and as soon as I started sort of fleshing out that idea there were lots of things that came together like I'd started, my first ever job was as a reporter on the local paper in here in Dorset. So I had sort of lots of residual bits of local history that were buried (laughs) deep in my psyche. So I'd met people who'd um, served here during the Second World War. And I'd known, for example, that GIs went to D-Day through Weymouth, which is a town just down the road from me here. But I'd sort of forgotten it. But then I thought, no, that is really interesting that there's this little seaside town that people went off to fight on the beaches of D-Day. And so as soon as it's like a lesson in learning to pay attention to your near surroundings, I think, as soon as you start looking, you find all these really, really good things. Yeah, I, I wonder if you see it 
in some ways with fresh perspective now that you've brought all the the history and you know the beauty of it together in this novel now do you see yeah. it in a different way yeah and I know a lot I know a lot more about it as well like I know for example the road that I drive my daughter to school on is wider than it would ordinarily be because it was widened to allow American tanks to drive up and down because huh. it was one of the yeah the main thoroughfares where they used to take troops down to the landing craft that was going to take them off to D-Day um, and so you, it, it sort of forces you to pay more attention to very basic things like road width um and yeah and, and it's been lovely as well when i've done um events for the book locally lots and lots of people have come to talk to me and said oh it made me think about this part of dorset or have you seen this house it really made me think of that and it's been a way of um talking to people about how my fictional dorset has sort of mapped onto their <laughs> their <laughs> yeah. dorset and comparing it that's been really nice it's a great way to put it well i want to see dorset i've been to the uk many times but i have not been to anywhere near your fictional village so ah. i think i have to get there okay i i have one last question for you um it sounds like you just you you did a lot of reading for this you're naturally a big reader as most writers are but I'm wondering if there's a book in your house that is, I don't know, you know, particularly well-loved. It's a book maybe that you go back to for inspiration or comfort or familiarity and, and what that book might be. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there's so many books that I love. It's, that's really hard. You know, the one I go back to if I'm feeling poorly, actually, or – when I was pregnant and I couldn't cope with anything, <laughs> I read, I reread Little Women. Oh, I think that's like oh my, my, my uber text. And I loved it so much. I read it when I was about six or seven, I think, for the first time, and then have just returned to it over and over again through my life and then saw the film recently, which I loved. Um, but there's something, I don't know what it is about, something about a family story, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but being with those, being with those sisters <laughs> their mum is just that's just my favorite book i think yeah what a great choice <laughs> joanna i've really really enjoyed this thank you so much oh and thank you so much for having me it's fun bye <laughs> joanna quinn's new novel is called the whalebone theater and she was joining us today from dorset england <laughs> 